Well, in 11th grade, I didn't want to go to the prom or JS at my school. My mom and dad, though, were encouraging me to do so, but life as a junior in high school wasn't that great for me. I was a member of Geeks for Christ. <laughs> so you could see my dating possibilities weren't the best. Now, I wasn't exactly a prime candidate for prom, as you can probably see. As I remember it, parents of juniors were responsible for putting on the after-dinner party after a nice dinner was served at a fancy restaurant. They were in charge. Now, I had noticed girls, but they probably hadn't noticed me for some reason. But my parents kept bugging me to go. They wanted me to go. They were even willing to volunteer and chaperone that night. Because the house for the after-dinner prom event was being held at 1006 Summit Avenue in St. Paul. 1006 Summit Avenue in St. Paul. Do you know who lived there? He did. Governor Al Cui and his wife Gretchen. You see, Governor Cui <clears throat> had five kids, and his youngest son Ben and his, Ben's wife Ginny, later to be his wife, were my classmates at Minnehaha Academy in South Minneapolis, my junior and senior year in high school. So thinking back, I think my mom and dad really wanted me to go to prom so they could get inside the uh, governor's mansion. And my date was mom and dad's tickets to get an inside look. I think they were so smart, and as you could probably see, I was a little bit clueless. Governor Al Qui died a month ago, uh, a month shy of his 100th birthday, and his funeral was in Minneapolis <clears throat> yesterday, September 9th. His son, Ben, wrote these words the day after he died and with this picture. My classmate wrote of his dad, I held his hand for the last time Friday night. One of my favorite memories of my dad is holding his giant hand while we prayed together. For most of my life, he had calloused hands from working with horses, and in recent years, they were soft and tender as he lived in assistant living, then memory care. But his hands were still giant. He had a beautiful relationship with God, and even as his mind declined, his prayers were so intimate as he spoke and listened to his creator. The thought of huge hands, really, really big hands, connects with the text that we are looking at this morning in Isaiah 41. The prophet Isaiah uses human terms to help us understand the provision and tender care of a majestic and great and holy God we worship and praise and adore. And God uses, through Isaiah's words, he uses the word hands. This isn't just unique to Isaiah, this idea that we can relate to him on human terms. What's unique to Christianity is that as followers of Christ, we can know the creator of the universe personally. We acknowledge that every time we pray, when Jesus' men asked him, his disciples asked him to pray, Jesus said this, pray like this. And notice what he doesn't say. And when you pray, address him this way, our Elohim God, our all-powerful one, the maker of heaven and earth. He could have said that. That would have connected. would have been right biblically, but Jesus didn't use those words, did he? Or Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our Yahweh God, the one who never breaks his word and he is faithful, and true to his covenant, it, that would all be true. That would all be true. But Jesus didn't say that. What Jesus did say is when you pray, pray this way, our Father, 
our Father. Someone we can relate to as a father, but one who is perfect. So this morning, we're going to look at the hand of God in this message. And even when you ask situations that happen throughout the world, and you say, God, where are you? Look for his hand. So welcome back to part two of the Gospel of Isaiah. Last week, we began part two, and we looked briefly at an overview of the second half of the book of Isaiah. And we looked at uh, the, gospel, uh, the Bible project, and on the back of your bulletin, we put that hack on the back as well, too, with the, with the website. So if you'd like to go there and study that on your own, you sure can. And what's key is when you get to chapters 40 through 66 is the last word of judgment in 39 is not the last word. The last word actually will be hope and one of a redeemer. Chapter 40, we introduced, was the incomparable comfort of our Father. Comfort, comfort of our Father. And then the incomparable greatness of our King. The greatness of our God is His guarantee that He cannot, He will not, break His promises. So we come to a scene in chapter 41 that shifts to a trial, a court scene. And so I want you to imagine in, in, in your mind your favorite actor, who played a lawyer, maybe that's old school Perry Mason, or maybe it's someone, a new, newer actor like Matthew McConaughey or Leonardo DiCappuccino. And as they come into the courtroom or they approach the bench, a trial is on. You see this kind of trial language right away out of verse 1. Watch for it. Verse 1 says, let them come forward or let them approach the bench. And verse 21 says this, present your case. You'll hear the word judgment. The word judgment does not mean condemn here. It means to make a right decision. That's where we're going to go. Now, just a quick preview so we know what, what's, what's taking place. And so actually, this, the name of this message is entitled, See You in Court Guaranteed. It's a guarantee. So, where are we going to go? Here's where we're going to go. Our great king will guarantee he is governing with care and he is ruling the world. He calls all the nations to come from the far off nations. And he introduces a key character, the, the, the first witness, if you, if you say. And you can't quite make out the witness that he calls to court. You can't quite say, like, like who is this? We'll see it later in the book of Isaiah. And the whole point behind the first seven verses is this, that he rules history. God rules history. Now you may hear that and you say, you know, not, not to be rude, but I, I, I know we can talk that way here in church, but I don't know about you, but when I go and fill my car with gas, oftentimes a quick trip, I will cheat and look at the headlines of the different papers, USA Today, Leader, Telegram, Minneapolis, Star, and Trib. And when I, I read the headlines, I'm not seeing on the headlines, he rules history. How about you? So how does he do that? We'll see his involvement. And we won't just hear it from anybody. We'll hear it from a newly expectant mom who says words prophetically. The second thing that we're going to take a look at is, is it that the Lord's hands are holding you as a follower of Jesus. 
And there are three specific pictures that are given to us. And in this case, uh, the, the defendants are, are, are consistent. And, and, and there are hints of who the one who will stand in our place. There are hints for that. And then we are introduced to character witnesses. Character witnesses. Again and again and again. So I invite you to uh, find a copy of the scriptures. It's there in your pew Bible. I think you'll get a lot more out of it if you follow along. We'll read all of chapter 41. And it's on page 620, reading in Jesus' name. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and he moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and who has carried it through? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I am he. Let me repeat that. I, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and they say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The nails drop down the idols so it will not topple. But you, Israel, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, your descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you're my servant. I've chosen you. I've not rejected you. So don't fear, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. For I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced, and those who oppose you will be nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be nothing at all, for I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I'll make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and the glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and parched ground into springs, and I will put in the desert the cedar and the achaia and the myrtle and the olive, and I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob King. 
Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will not be dismayed and filled with fear, but you are less than nothing. And your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I've stirred up one from the north and he comes out from the one from the rising sun who calls on my name and he treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if they were a potter treading through the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know or beforehand so we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold this. No one has heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I looked, but there's no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I asked them. See, they are false. Their deeds mount to nothing. Their images are wind, are but wind and confusion. This is God's word. It's alive, it speaks, it convicts, it feeds, it encourages, it teaches, it guides, it directs, rebukes, Watch and see what God's word does in your life and in my life this morning. Well, we're going to be in court this morning, and we're going to take a look at these first seven verses right away. And you saw that in that very first verse, there's a herald that comes and calls attention, and he is behind the rulers of the world, and he even gives his guarantee. What is his guarantee? His guarantee is who he is, his I am. I kind of had some fun with this this week. I thought to myself, if this is a court of law and God is calling himself almost to the witness stand, who does God give an oath to? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You've seen this before, right? People put their hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, all that. I kind of, I thought, who does God do that to? You know who he does that to? Himself. He says, I am. I am means that God is independent. He's all sufficient in himself and the only source of existence and life on his character. And and, and so verse 2 comes, and did you catch that? There's this little hint, the one who has stirred up one from the east, and then I have stirred up one from the north. Like, who is that? Who is that? We'll, We'll find out later clearly stated, the one who just rolls through the nations, blow and and defeat is not a part of him. His career is marked by pursuing each battle. He emerges unscathed. Who is that? The end of chapter 44, if you slide over to 44, verse 28, you'll see a name. Give just a few seconds. 44, verse 28. See a name that starts with C? His name is Cyrus. We're, we're hinted at here, but then in 45 verse 1, just drop down a verse, you see his name as well too. Cyrus. He's the one. Now, so some of you might be thinking to yourself, I can't keep everybody straight. I need a program to keep everybody straight. And so uh, Julie and I were in, um, uh, in Walmart, uh, picking up some stuff, and school hadn't even started. I mean, the football season even hadn't started, and they already put up at Walmart and at Menards, they put up 
candy for Halloween. I'm thinking, I can't believe this. This is crazy. We haven't even kicked off school. And so we were thinking about ABCs, and so there's lots of people that are interacting, kingdoms and people and empires, and how do I do that? So I thought to myself, we, not to remember your ABCs, but to remember your ABPs. If you want to understand Isaiah a little bit better, this is printing your bullets in it. It will be helpful to you and maybe connect some dots. So let's just go off on a, just a rest stop really quick. Here's what I mean by that. The A stands for Assyria. Their foreign policy was to annihilate those that they took over. That's why they were called the Nazis of the Middle East of ancient time. Uh, they, they would annihilate people. You ever hear of the term called the 10 lost tribes? They would just obliterate people. And you find this in 2 Kings chapter 17. And most famously, you find this idea of the, the wrath of Assyria to the 10 tribes in the north in that crazy book of the book of Hosea. The B stands for Babylon, and that's what the, the readers for this chapter will be reading in Babylon. Their foreign policy, would, they would come in, take over a country, and then they would take the young and the wealthy and the healthy and the smart, and they would pull them away. They would plunder for, for wealth, and they would plunder for people. That, that was called the exile. And the most famous book in the Bible that you can read about that foreign policy in God's people is the book of Daniel. Well, then you get to what's being referred to here, and that's Persia. Persia, how, their foreign policy, they would manage and oversee and tax and rule over. That's how they managed people. And most famously, most famously, you pick up Persia in two book, in, a, in several books. Our, our friend Queen Esther, that's in Persia. And then in Ezra chapter, and Ezra and Nehemiah. That's important. It's important. Why did you tell us that? I told you that for this reason. What the book of Isaiah tells us is the Lord is behind all of that. He rules history. He's the one who's done it. And he says, I, I did this in the past. He did this in the past with Egypt, and now he will do it for his people. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I said a couple weeks ago, we need the gospel, not because it's the ABCs, but because it's the A to Z. It addresses all of our, all of our issues. So how do people respond to this? Verses 5 through 7, all those images that were made there, there's a hopeless reaction. Make new gods. Make new gods. There's panic. And verse 6 says, stay strong, have courage. The idea is, you got this. The coastlands are worried about the rise and the conquest of Cyrus. New idols are being manufactured. They've experienced the horrible captivity where is God in this? And the cure, the cure is better idols. Better idols, more distractions, better phones, more likes, more affirmations, more followers or idols in my generation, more toys, more stuff, more experience, more distractions. And they have left us empty. Empty. The back half of this chapter is verses 21 through 25, and it talks about the futility of idols. And you pick up that sarcastic tone. I tried to communicate that as we were reading. Idols 
do something, say something, predict something. And what does Isaiah say? They can't. They are absolutely, they can't. Now remember, the context of this is God's incomparable comfort. He is a shepherd and he wants his beloved to be assured they have not been forgotten. They will not be crushed. His provisions are trustworthy. And so, coming back to this question, you know, ask yourself, well, you, you know, you kind of touched on it, Pastor Kirk. What about the mess that we have, the cultural mess, the political divide, the morality debates, the distrust? Where is God in all of this? So let me just refer back to Walmart, I guess. Um, before we know it, after they blow out all the half-price candy and the masks and all that stuff, what are they going to start selling at the stores? Christmas, right? And one of the songs that we're going to hear, um, we're going to hear this, this song played all over the place. We're going to hear Joy to the World. It's Isaac's Watts hymn, and it, and it communicates a, 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 an understanding of world history. The first verse anticipates the king's coming. The second verse in Joy to the World celebrates his rule. The third verse views Jesus, the Savior, as the sin cur in the sin-cursed world. He's now there. And the fourth verse actually says this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. And when we sing that, nobody goes, well, it's just a song. No, it's true. And there was an expectant mother who was on a silent retreat not any mother, but the blessed Virgin Mary who said these words in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. It's called the Magnificat. Listen to what she says. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And this is what Mary says. He's performed mighty things with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts, and he has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away. He has helped his servant, Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now you might be thinking, yeah, okay, she said that, but can you give me something that I can see and touch and know about his involvement? I sure can. This, this changed it. This is his involvement. God became flesh and lived amongst us, died for us, and rose victorious. That's his involvement. You can debate it, 
You can doubt it. That's his involvement. And now we talk about being in Christ. In Christ. Not merely thinking or believing, but his actual spirit is in us, changing us. As C.S. Lewis said, as stated in Mere Christianity, we are the fingers and the muscles and the sinew of Jesus. We are his body. And we are representatives of his new kingdom. We are ambassadors of his kingdom that he was building in Babylon. He was building a kingdom of people who knew him in Persia, who, who knew him under Roman law, and then in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, and now around the world. His movement is around the world, and it didn't just stay in Jerusalem, but it invaded Europe, Africa, and India. And the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iraq. Wow. We're in court. Guaranteed. And in this court of law, God brings the first witness, Cyrus, and lets us know that he rules the world. Now just stop and pause. A word of caution. We will share the same fate as anyone else if we lose our identity. There will never be a time when the everlasting God will become faint and weary. How do we know that? Look at Isaiah 31. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 41, 40, verse 31. I'll get it right. 40, verse 31. There will never be a time when the everlasting God will become faint and weary. You can trust him to know what he is doing, even though his understanding is unsearchable for our puny minds. Those who wait and stretch themselves out the out before the Lord will never be disappointed for he is able to renew their strength when all human resources are gone. Court is in session. Court is in session. And so we get this next series of verses from 8 through 20 and we're introduced to a, a theme again and again and it is a contrast theme of one who truly rules and it paints for us three beautiful pictures that Isaiah paints, not with his pen, but with the hand of the Lord. He guards and cares and remember. And each of these pictures is marked, like I said, by the hand. And the hand of a creator is personal. So the first picture we see is in verses 8 through 13. We see the hand of the chooser is for the fearful. The first hearers of this word that came from Isaiah, the first hearers we're, not secure, we're, we're secure not because they are strong or they are resourceful or they have grit or they get after it or they're necessarily good or righteous. No. The hand of the chooser is for the faithful because they are chosen simply by the grace in Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. Look at those beautiful words. Look at those beautiful words that say this. Israel, you're my servant. Don't think of servant as slavery as we might think, like civil war or human trafficking. Being a servant at that time was being drawn into a relationship with intimacy with your master and being shared assignments that, that he trusted you for. 
And what's beautiful, what's beautiful is King Jesus steps on the, on, in, in the timeline of the world and he says this, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And that's the next verse. Abraham, a friend. Wow. And, and, and it's for the fearful. The, the promise is for the fearful. Do you see that word? It, it's repeated in verse 10, and then it's verse 13 as well too. And then 14 as well too. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I didn't know this until a couple years ago. I was reminded about this. Do you know that there's 366 verses in the Bible, in the Bible, that talk about do not be afraid, do not be anxious, do not worry? I became aware of that when I watched the life story of the founder of Voice of the Martyr, Richard Warnbrandt. He was arrested on February 29th, 1948 in Romania by the communist authorities. And he said, I remembered then that there were 366 verses about do not fear, do not be anxious, do not worry. And it was the 29th. There's even one for leap years. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I've chosen you. I've elected you. I've selected you. And we're introduced to this idea that by the grace of God, we have been chosen. And we'll, we'll see that repeated throughout the book of Isaiah. We'll see it in chapter 43 through 45, 48 and 49 and 55. We'll see that. It's not just here. I've chosen you. I've selected you. And, and, and so there's verse 10, that beautiful, beautiful verse. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about you this week. And I thought one of the ways to grow devotionally in your own personal life, in your own walk with Jesus, is to memorize God's word, to tuck God's word in your heart, to memorize it. And Isaiah 41 verse 10 is a great one to tuck away. It's printed in your worship bulletin. I put that in there intentionally so that you will take that this week and put it in your vehicle, in your truck, or when you're getting, getting up in the morning and getting ready, or you're on your kitchen table, so that you will, will memorize that verse and get it in your heart, and then you can meditate on it and let it marinate in your heart and do something like this. Look at the verse. You put your name in there. So do not fear for I'm with you, Kirk. You don't have to use my name, but if you want to pray for me, that'd be great. So do not fear for I am with you, Carl. I'm with you, Paul. I'm with you, Chris. Don't be dismayed for I'm your God, Kirk. I will strengthen you, Mike. I will help you, Lori. I will uphold you, Cindy, with my righteous right hand. And then get that in and let the Holy Spirit just marinate that. And say, this is what that means, child. This is what that looks like, son. This is true, daughter. When, 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 God, uses, when God uses the word hand, it, it, it means personal action and available resources. Hand was used in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus by putting a hand on the beast to be killed. Uh, another symbol for hand in the book of Leviticus was a symbol for designating a substitute. You might say, how does that relate to this picture? Because the second picture is this. 
The second picture is the hand of the Redeemer is for the neglected. In verses 14 through 16. The hand of the Redeemer is for neglected for the neglected. The tiny nation of Israel will be victorious to outlast Babylon that we're talking about, that will outlast Persia, that will outlast Rome, and God will build his new Israel, the church, the bride of Christ, the redeemed that will last forever, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The hand of the Redeemer is for the neglected. Now in verse 14 through 16, there's two pretty key words that you have to differentiate between. The first one may sound a little weird, and it says this, it's the term worm. Don't think of the worm as being derogatory, and the reason why we know that is because it's paralleled with men and women of Israel. And we know how God feels about men and women of Israel. Chosen, selected, servants, friends. That's how he thinks. But the second word is the key word. It's the key word, redeemer. What, what, what is that? Why is that important? Redeemer, it, that's a noun, but it comes from a verb, and it means this, to act, to benefit someone who cannot help themselves, a beneficiary. To redeem someone who is one's next of kin or like they were next of kin. To redeem someone who's next of kin or like they were next of kin. So the Redeemer would buy someone out of slavery. The Redeemer would make sure that uh, uh, someone's family name wouldn't go extinct. And we see this in the beautiful love story of Ruth. A redeemer avenges the death of their nearest kin. kin. And God acts as a redeemer. Most famously, for sure, most famously, when he got his people out of Egypt. But later here in Babylonian exile. And today through his church, he uses us to rescue those who are downtrodden and persecuted in prison and vulnerable little ones and orphans and widows. He uses us that way. He has obligated himself to Israel. My dad, my dad introduced me to a, a product called J.B. Welds. I remember when I was a new homeowner, and I remember my dad, he got in my grill, and he goes, now don't listen to ball games and play with your kids, because once you open product A and product B and you mix them together, you cannot break that weld. Do you understand? I'm like, yeah, I got it. I got it, J.B. Welds. There's two words that are welded here. Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. And they belong together for your benefit. You may be thinking, you know, you're, you're really making a big deal out of the hands thing. I am. Because here's why. Jesus makes a big deal out of the hands thing. Look at what he says in John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and you follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And now read the rest with me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I saw that verse, and I go, there's two hands. There's the hand of Jesus, and then there's my Father's hand. The hand for Jesus is pierced. Our kids asked us when they were little, they said, if we get to heaven and there's all these people, who will we, how will we know Jesus? I said, two ways. Easy. When he speaks, you'll know his voice. And when he hugs you, look at his hand. Here's the second hand. 
The second hand is that of the Father. What's that hand like? Listen to Isaiah 48. It says this, Surely my right hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand together. That's a pretty big hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. The hand of creator, and we walk in the creator's world. Here's the third and final picture. The Lord's hand is for the needy. The, the context, commentators will tell you, the context of this is really Exodus 13 through 17. And that focus is this idea that God will provide. And you'll notice a series of concentric or uh, continual I wills. Did you see all the I wills in verses 17 through 18, 19? When there's a repeated thing like that, they're trying to get you to pay attention. They're trying to emphasize. The writer is trying to emphasize. They use the same tense. They use the same stem of the verb. And it means this. It's incompleted. It will be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled more in the future. It's both and. I will answer them. I will not forsake them. I will make rivers full. I will turn the desert into pools of water. I will put in the desert. I will set junipers in the wasteland. I will meet the need, your needs. The word need, needy, that's used there, there's a positive negative. The positive connotation is one of being willing to go our Father's way. The negative connotation is bending before life's powerful Forces or resourcefulness. Exodus chapter 17 is the story of God's people when they grumbled that there was no water. And when they prayed, God heard their prayers. How will God meet your needs? By his grace, by his people, by his resources, by his word, by his spirit, by his peace, by his very presence. As I stated before, you, will, you and I will share the same fate of the world if we forget this simple identity. I'm his beloved. There will never be a time when the everlasting God will become faint and weary. You can trust him to know what he's doing even though his understanding is in unsearchable for our puny minds. And those who willingly stretch themselves out will never be disappointed for he's able to renew their strength when all human resources are exhausted. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our final hymn. Uh, This hymn that we're going to sing, I asked Karen if we could do this to close our uh, service, is written by a guy by the name of Multi B. Babcock. It's my second favorite hymn. He was a New York pastor and originally there were 16 verses. We're not going to sing all 16 of them, okay? We got stuff to do. But one of my favorite verses is this, in my, this is my father's world. Why, why, should, why should I be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the same, the earth be glad. In the rustling gla- grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. I, I just, I fall back on this hymn and go, oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. This is my father's world. He's not a part of my world. I'm a part of his. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that we can gather and we can hear your word. I thank you for these words of comfort. And we've been in court. And we have to acknowledge that you are the one who rules and reigns. You are sovereign, you are in control, and even when we don't see that, the proof rests in the manger, hung on the cross, rose from the grave. You got personally involved in this mess. And I thank you that as we stretch ourselves out before you, as we throw ourselves before you, you will not turn us away. So in your power and in your might, folks who are gathered here, who hear it on the radio, watch it online, by your presence, by your Holy Spirit, through your people, through the power of your word, I thank you that you're going to meet them. When we cry out to you, you don't turn a deaf ear, because this is your world. In Jesus' name, amen.